0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dear Katie, where survivors of sexual assault, rape, and abuse share their stories from hurt to healing. This is Katie Kestner, your host, and I myself appeared on the cover of Time Magazine at age 18 as a survivor of acquaintance rape. I was one of the first ever in history to speak out nationally and publicly about being the victim of non-stranger rape. And I've dedicated my entire life to ending sexual violence, raising awareness, and supporting survivors. Our episode today is with Brenda Tracy. When a young mom is invited to join her friends at a college party, she, Brenda, could never have imagined the horrors that lay in store for her. That night, she was gang raped by four men, two of whom were Oregon State football stars. This trauma turned her world upside down, affecting everyone in her life, including her own two young sons. Today, we talked to Brenda and she shares her national commitment to survivor advocacy. Now, when she's not working as a nurse, she's educating athletic teams about how they can help end rape culture. While Brenda may have had a rough start in life with two children uh, coming along as a teenager herself, Her marriage was abusive, and then this gang rape. I know that many of our listeners can relate to so many aspects of her story, even not if the same fact pattern, but I know also that regardless of what your standing, your place in life is, there are so many ways that we can learn from Brenda's story about how we can work to change rape culture. Listen in. Welcome
1: to the Dear Katie Podcast. This is Katie Kessner. And this is Claire Kaplan. We want to remind our listeners that the contents of this podcast may be emotionally difficult. And so we want to remind you that self-care is very important and we encourage you to take care of your safety and your well-being. So if that means reaching out to friends or family or a hotline, taking a break from listening, going back to it later, whatever you need. That's what's most important. And additional resources can be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll give you that address at the conclusion of the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Claire. Always important to let our listeners know how to do self-care. And today we are so pleased and happy to welcome Brenda Tracy. Brenda, you have been also a survivor as an agent of change and taken you know your journey to from hurt to healing to another level and we are delighted to share your story and that journey with our listeners today and since not everyone although they should know your story not everyone does so um welcome brenda and could you start off sharing a little bit about where you grew up, who you are, um, you know, what brings you to your microphone? What's your briefest bio sketch that you can give our listeners? <laughs> understand, like, while you could speak for days, just, you know, what, where did you grow up? What, where did you go to school? Um, anything else that you can just share as backdrop so that you can really, you know, engage our listeners where each and everyone is at their, and, and their, you know, backstory.
2: Okay, um, I, will, I will do my best to keep this short. Um, first off, thank you for having me on. My name, as you said, is Brenda Tracy. Um, I am, I mean, really what brings me here today to your podcast is I am a, first, I'm, when we think about background, I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Um, I was born in Alaska, spent um, most of my life in Oregon. That's where I am now, part of the time in Alaska as well. But I am known in the public also for being a survivor of gang rape by four college football players, and um, shared my story about that in uh, November of 2014. But I'm also as a person, um, I'm a mother. I have a I'm a single been a single mother since my sons were about two and three years old. They are twenty twenty eight and twenty nine now. I think is how old they are. I kind of well. <laughs> lose track. I really get so old. But um, but also, some I've been a single mom for a long time. Um, I'm also a grandma now, my granddaughter just had a, a, her, you know, fourth birthday recently, um, very close with my family. But, uh, today I'm, uh, happy and proud to be, um, an activist and advocate for survivors. Um, I am before doing this, I was a registered nurse. Um, so I've always kind of been in this field of kind of, I feel like compassion and care and trying to take care of other people's and people and advocate for other people and that kind of thing. Um, but today I am, I guess what you would call a public figure in the space of, um, activism around issues of sexual violence in sports. I do a lot of work with men, um, almost solely focused on men and, um, how to engage, uh, the good men into, you know, getting involved in sexual violence prevention on our campuses. I do policy work. Legislative work in Oregon. I'm the founder of a nonprofit called Set the Expectation, which is also a campaign. Um, yeah, is that
0: okay? <laughs> that's um, that's super amazing. Enough, um, Brenda. But I, you know, I, I wanted to you know tag onto a couple things you said. I want to roll back at some point and we talk about what it means to be good men. Mm-hmm. Use yeah. that phrase. And as a um, you've you said you have two, two sons, children.
2: Yep. Yeah, two yep. sons,
0: why? Um, which is also how do we make sure the men in our lives are good men? And what does that mean to each of us? I think that that's a thing we could pick up on later. Um, but also, you know, I love that you're from Alaska. I only had the opportunity to visit your state once so far in my life. And it's just majestic in so many ways, but also very um, interesting in terms of the culture and the different ways that we think about life. Um, growing up in various cultures and exposures. And I'd also like to delve into that because one of the aspects that I like our listeners to think about is, you know, the similarities of our journeys as survivors, but how our cultural background informs our survivorship. So that sounds amazing. And thank you also for revealing not just, you know, the headline story that has garnered attention on the national platform with the gang rape, but also hearkening back to the own your childhood sexual abuse. And I think we should start with probably how you got to, you know, got through Alaska and then the the location and space and narrative that happened with the gang rape. But at some point I think our listeners are always interested in hearing about the layering of our experiences and how one um harm and hurt informs another also so let's start with you know so you grew up in alaska you're 18 years old you went to high school there right um for for part of it yes i
2: i actually lived in alaska and my my biological parents divorced when i was very small so i came to oregon probably when i was about 2 um yeah and then and then my mom remarried and i was raised by my by my stepfather um and then I went back to Alaska, um, probably, I think I was in I was in junior high, and then I was there with my biological father until I was a junior in high school and then came back to Oregon.
0: Okay. But that five-year spate, maybe from 7th to 11th or mm-hmm, 6th, mm-hmm. Through, 6th through 11th, was probably also very important. Inform- you know, that's when we as young women become cognizant of what it means to be a woman, really. You know, we get our periods, we get these things called boobs, like stuff happens. Um, so I think that's important that we could think about. So then though, you graduate from high school though, back in Oregon.
2: Yes, yes. And, and I would say probably that's when, I will say too, I don't get asked about this a lot, but it's interesting when you said how like culture and environments and that kind of thing and in the, in the layers of how we, our activism, or how we feel today as survivors, I think probably one of the most pivotal things for me in my activism and kind of this intersection is that my, my sons are both half black, and so I, when I had my sons, um, you know, in Oregon, I, I dealt with a lot of of racism and and things around that, and I think a lot of that, you know, being a white woman with half black male children who are really, you know, seen as black men in society um, has really, and really kind of guided some of the work that I do and just the intersection of, of racism, sexual violence, and, you know, all these different things. So it's interesting that you brought that up. Cause I'm thinking about how impactful that's been in who I am and how I see the world.
0: Yeah. I can only imagine. And I'm so glad you concur. You know, I think Brenda, that's, when we start to unpack the layers of how complex it is to experience trauma and how many different ways we all, you know, can, can find places. And then, and then ultimately when we get to the end of our interview, I think we start to think about all the behaviors and things we've said and done, you know, there was this internal mechanism guiding us and then we chose to speak and do certain things as a result of all of those informants, if you will, including the one you just spoke to. And so let's 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 get there. So I think let's start with um, the the story. So you're back in Oregon. You're a senior now, living now not with your biological dad in Alaska, but with your biological mom in Oregon.
2: Yes, my biological mother and my stepfather.
0: Right, so somehow they got custody again for you to live in Oregon, and we don't have to go into that, but so there you are. and this was a public school or a private school where you were in Portland what what part of Oregon Oregons I, I was
2: in Salem, Oregon, and mm-hmm. I was at a public high school.
0: Okay, so now and what were you doing at that time? Like, I always like to think about when I was a senior, and I knew nothing in the world. <laughs> or I thought I knew everything and I was gonna be a chemical engineer. I was gonna change the world, right? But on superficial stuff, where were you as a senior? Like what were you thinking at age 18? I'm gonna do blank. So yeah, I wasn't doing that. Um I I come from a background.
2: I'm sorry, I come from a background of quite a bit of trauma. Um, I didn't land in Oregon under the best circumstances, and so When I did get to Oregon, um, my relationship with my parents was a very uh, tenuous one. I I would say that I really didn't...
0: With all... May I just inquire for the sake of our listeners, all of your parents, pep and biological, all four?
2: Yes, everyone. (laughs) Yeah, let me... I'll just very quickly go back. Um, So I... My... I grew up in an alcoholic home with my stepfather. During that time, I was sexually abused by a family member. Um, And then again, at nine years old, I was raped by my babysitter's boyfriend, who was a high school student. At age 12, I disclosed to my parents in Oregon that something had happened, that that had happened to me. Um, The police were called, but the statute of limitations had ran. So nothing happened and my family acted as though nothing had happened, but I didn't, I began acting out. So because I was acting out and I was running away and these kinds of things, my parents didn't know what to do with me. So they literally just put me on a plane one day and said, you're going to live with your dad in Alaska. Um, I was actually in a car. I thought we were going to the store and I was actually taken to the airport. I did not know this was happening until the minute I got to the airport was sent. I was sent to Alaska And when I got to Alaska, my stepmother, in a sense, basically said, we don't really want you here, but we have to take you. And so I lived there. um, And then right before I went back to Oregon, our house burned down and I was essentially kind of put on a plane in the same exact manner um, and sent back to Oregon. Um, And all the while, all the while I was in Oregon or in Alaska, I was kind of under this assumption because of the way my parents had posed it to me that my parents here didn't really want me and or- the parents in Oregon. So yeah, I really didn't, I, I was, um, when I got here to Oregon, um, I was very much a broken child. I, I didn't know that anyone really loved me or cared about me. Um, I was an athlete and ath- athletics was really what I had. Um, You know, sports was kind of the only place that people cheered for me. They loved me. They took care of me, you know, that kind of thing. So I was just, I was, I was desperate for some sort of, I don't know, but I, you know, I met my children's father, um, and I became pregnant. Um,
0: Wait, 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 before we get to the children's father part, um, that was a big leap. Um, can we go back to you were an athlete. Um, what sport? Um, at what level? Like tell us more about that.
2: So in junior high, when I got to Alaska, I was in I think the sixth grade or seventh grade maybe, but I was I was young and um I started playing basketball and volleyball. I was tall. I've been I've been I'm five ten now and I think I've been like five eight or five ten since I was in like the sixth grade. I grew really fast. And so I was kind of, you know, discovered as this big tall girl. And so I started playing volleyball and basketball and I was good at it. Um And we won championships in in Alaska and, you know, I was player of the year and that kind of thing. Um, And then when I came to Oregon, um, I really just wanted to focus on volleyball. So I quit basketball and I just wanted to play volleyball and I was supposed to go to college on a scholarship, but I then got pregnant in high school and chose to have a child instead.
0: Okay. So the, the gentleman that you refer, he, you have both boys that you mentioned earlier from your high school boyfriend.
2: Yes. Yes. I met, I met, um, I met a man and, uh, immediately took to him. He was my first boyfriend. He was my first everything. Um, and was, you know, pregnant like six months later. Um, but I was in high school. Um, I was a teenager. So, um, I had my first son when I was 18. And then, um, unfortunately that relationship was full of domestic violence, but I chose to have another child, um and so I, I I have two sons with the same father now. Got
0: it. Thank you so much for that part of your narrative, Brenda. And so, oh my gosh, I can't even. It's a lot. I know. <laughs> it's a
1: lot. You just shared a ton, and I. I you know, it's a lot, but I think that it's. I'm sure some of our listeners will absolutely yeah. resonate with your story. 100.
0: percent. You know, so many times, Brenda, I'm sitting working with students um, in some you know, urban or rural school where your story is their story. And I'm so mindful whether someone is 16 or 18 or 22, we can't presume that they haven't, you know, had a child. That, that, you know, that's, that to me is also an, an ist in of itself, you know, a privilege or or, or not, um, so thank you for sharing that part of your journey because it's really accessible um, and honest and helpful. The only other question I want to think about though is the juxtaposition, uh, juxtaposition between the relationship with the father of your two children versus as we get into what, what we talk about so much is violence and sexual objectification you know how just out of curiosity because i feel like we're now getting into an interwoven story of abuse a love a love of some sort to have children with this man although you just alluded to also domestic abuse perhaps with this man so maybe try and unwind how our emotions not necessarily as female, but maybe as female inner you know intersect with how we think about power and abuse because you you've just kind of given us a lot of layers of your life and somehow and and maybe there's not an easy way to dissect them, right It's not like, putting the frog on the pins when we're in seventh grade and the science teacher says, dissect this frog and pull out these organs. You know, I, I feel like that's very objective and linear and maybe what we're also talking about in our interview with you, Brenda, is the complexities of abuse and power and control and love and um, whatever you want to share with that, that I'd love to hear. Yeah.
2: Well, I think, I think at the time, you know, this was, he was one of the, just the first people to, you know, the first man to really like just even, I think, pay attention to me in a way that I thought was not just, you know, sexually violent or, or that kind of thing, you know, what I've, I've dealt with before in my life, but just that, like, he liked me, right? Like a boyfriend, girlfriend kind of a
0: thing. He, he validated you. Right. And Claire, Claire, I love because we had another interview like this. Brenda, I always like to dig deep on what it means for us. I sometimes want all of us, our listeners, everyone to think about. I love when you said he showed interest. He liked me, Brenda. Like I, I'll just say like me, I was a geeky. I was, I I was not as tall and cool (laughs) as you. (laughs) I was short, I was smart, I couldn't do cartwheels, I don't sing with a lark, I don't do any other, I do no girly things. Like when I was in high school, all the quote, girly things were like, can you cheer for the team? Can you do some cartwheels? Can you throw some pom poms? Can you be cute? Can you have blonde hair? Can you wear cute outfits and have pink socks? You know, that was, that was the girly. I had none of those. I didn't have money. I didn't have cuteness. I had just geeked them. And I agree when any boy shows an interest in us as a female. And, you know, the boys, I, I, you know, I wasn't luring them. But what I feel like we're so frail sometimes because there's such a small, cool box for the coolest, best female to fit in that all the, the prom king and everybody else wants to go out with us. Um, and if we're not that we are, we so often feel like failures almost all the time. And so I, I want to just that long narrative aside, like, I kind of think that sometimes if I go deep, I'm like, Oh my gosh, a lot of abuse against women is because we feel frail as women because we, we take, you know, we, we take the smallest compliment that lands us somewhere close to feeling validated outside of that kind of narrow box. We're so desperate for anything that all of a sudden we, we take less than nothing, right? We take, we take the, We take the compliment from the person who is also going to harm us. So going back to, you know, how did he, can you remember? I like to paint pictures with our viewers a lot of times, like space, place, like hallway, outdoors, indoors, in a car. The first time he made you feel great, the father of your, your two kids. You know, can you remember how that happened? And yeah, I'm um,
2: sure. Yeah, no, I re- I remember the exact moment I met him. I was at my I was at my friend's house and we were playing ba- we we played basketball together. Um and I was we were out in his driveway playing basketball and I remember he just he walked up and there was just this instant like lightning bolt. I felt like they just hit me like who is that? <laughs> I mean, he was so cute and he was athletic and I was just immediately smitten. And he looked at me and it just was like sparks immediately. Um, it was almost like when people talk about like a love at first sight thing, I kind of felt like it was that. And then, But,
0: but um, did you know, say, or do any little small quirk? Sometimes nothing. No, not really. No, not really. I mean, he liked me and he
2: made it clear that he liked me and, um, you know, we went out to eat a couple of times or whatever,
0: but I think at that point, um, and he asked you out, like, I'm, I'm imagining he's the one who made the overture. Yeah. I mean, I think it was mutual. I don't
2: think there was a lot of effort he had to put in on his side. I don't, I think that looking back, I think he probably was just, you know, trying to sleep with me. Um, but he, but he did like me and recognize me as, you know, I remember he would say like, you know, you're a good girl. And I was very naive. I was a virgin. I, well, I say virgin, obviously I'd been sexually assaulted, but in my mind, that was my first act of consensual sex. Um and and so i think it's okay to use that word um so it, it, yeah i w- i was very naive and then you know 6 months later i i ended up you know pregnant and in, and in my mind i would always said i was going to wait until marriage or somebody i loved and so at that point i just felt like okay well i have to be with this person um i gave them my body i'm now pregnant i have to be with them we have to get married i had this very like you know thing in my in my head <clears throat> that i had to do so even though the relationship became violent when he would drink, I still felt like I was obligated to be with this person and make it, make it work. I just, it wasn't something that, that could fail. I had to, I had to figure it out.
1: I think that's a message that a lot of young women somehow get in their heads, whether it's culturally um, ascribed or parents say the kind of thing, like you get pregnant, you're stuck with that person for the rest of your life. You just have to marry them or, or be in a relationship with them. Right. Because. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think when you feel. It's not
1: even an option.
2: Well, and I think when you feel like a failure your, your whole life and you feel like something's fundamentally broken about you and something's fundamentally wrong with you already. um, And you're just, you know, constantly trying to fight back against that, you know? Right. And I felt That's like right. that from the first, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I've done a lot of therapy and I think, I realized, you know, in a therapy session with my with my therapist, I said, you know, the the writing was on the wall when I was two, and and the sexual abuse began. You know, I, I I was up against the wall from that moment forward. There there was that was a that was a moment that changed the course of my life forever.
0: Well, so I think then we talk, unfortunately, Brenda, to help our listeners understand what the story was of the gang rape. Um, can you, I'm sure you told that a million times. I know how awful and challenging it can be. Um, what, what would you be able to share with our listeners about that experience? So I,
2: I um, got married when I was 19 to my son's father. Um, we had another child right after. And I intentionally got pregnant with my second son because I wanted my first son to have someone in the world. Um, I think I felt like I was always alone and I wanted to make sure he wasn't. And so even though I knew this relationship was not going to last, I did want to have a second son. Um, So we did. And then I managed to get out of that relationship and successfully. And a year later, um, after the separation of this marriage, I started dating a football player at Oregon State. He was a football player. um, And I had a best friend at the time who was also dating a football player. And so we would go back and forth from our city to theirs. I was not a student at Oregon state. It's a common misconception about my story. Um, But uh, we would go back and forth. And then unfortunately on an evening in 1998, I went with my best friend to her boyfriend's apartment. And that night I was um, gang raped by, by four college football players, um, two of them from Oregon state and two of them, uh, visiting um, those
1: players that night, and were you, um, you were were you working and being a single mom and just supporting yourself at that point in time, or?
2: So, at that point in time, I was um, a kind of a, a cocktail server at a bar. I was working at a bar in Salem um, as a cocktail server, and my friend was working there as well. Um, I wasn't, you know, I really had no direction in my life at that point. Um, I think I was just pretty broken still. I don't know that I've I've ever been whole. I think I've always been just broken and more broken and more broken. Um, but yeah, I had my two sons. I was, I was on my own. The, the, unfortunately my, my ex-husband was absent and then in prison for quite a while. Um, and so I was just on my own with my boys. I lived with my parents at the time. Thank God for my mom and my stepfather. Um, when I was nine, my stepfather stopped drinking. So by the time I had, you know, lived in Oregon and then this gang rape happened, um, this was the moment where kind of my mom stepped up for me and we started to develop a a, a friendship and a relationship as as a, a mother and a daughter. And we have an amazing relationship today. Um, but that's kind of where you know, that trust started to be built was her support of me after this gang rape. Um, so yeah, I was just, you know, I was just kind of partying and having fun and kind of doing whatever I wanted. I really didn't have any direction. I didn't have any real goals. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um,
1: yeah, that's kind of where I was at at that point in my, in my life. So in the aftermath of this, um, was i'm assuming that that there was drinking involved and you you know were put into a very vulnerable position am i right or yeah i gosh
2: so yeah and i'm and i'm gonna i'm gonna just go and talk about this i've been i've been a little hesitant about doing the podcast today because in, in all transparency um someone who was involved the the best friend that i was with that night um she contacted me, she's been contacting me recently, um, and just kind of being bullying and threatening and everything. So I want to, you know, be measured in my words because I don't want to just speak from anger. So, but the, but the truth of what happened was, you know, she had invited me to go in to this apartment where her boyfriend lived. Another football player lived there with him. Um, her boyfriend's brother and his friend was in town from California. We got there everybody was drinking. Um, I'm not really a drinker. Uh, never really have drink. I don't get drunk. And that's basically because of my history of living in an alcoholic home and my children's father, that kind of thing. Um, but that night I was offered a drink and it was, um, uh, it was, um, orange juice and tangeree. And I took a sip and it tasted terrible and it was strong. And I, and I told one of the men, I said, can you take it back and put more orange juice in it? This is too strong for me. And all of them, you know, in the apartment were saying like, you know, cause I was saying I don't drink, you know, I don't drink. I'm fine. No, Brenda drink, have a drink. It'll be fine. You can crash here. You can stay here for the night, whatever. So when I got my drink back, it still tasted terrible, but I drank some of it. And, you know, probably 10, 15 minutes later after that, you know, I started to feel kind of, kind of, you know, hot and kind of, you know, pink and flush. And I was kind of laughing at first, like, oh my gosh, I'm already getting drunk off of, you know, a tiny bit of alcohol, but I'm going to, but I'm a lightweight. I've never really been drunk. You know, um, but at that point, um, and you know, another 10 minutes after that, I started to feel very dizzy and the room kind of started to move. Um, and I noticed that my best friend and her boyfriend, he stood up and he took her hand and he took her into the back bedroom of the apartment, which meant that I was then left in the living room with the other four men and I, pa- and I passed out. And then over the next, um, according to the police report, based on, uh, reports from every, everybody made comments, um, uh probably nine or 10 hours. Um, I was in and out of consciousness. I know that my attack lasted for about six or seven of which I was in and, I was in and out of consciousness. Um, I did not drink enough to be drunk. I believe I absolutely believe that I was, that I was drugged. However, my tox screen, my tox screen came back negative, but the nurse said that it's possible that if it was like a GHB substance or something like that, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't show by the time I had gone to do my rape kit. right. Right. half-life is very short. Yeah. And so that happened, um, the next morning when I woke up, um, I went to the back bedroom. I got my friend. I told her I wanted to leave. We got in her car. I was crying. I was inconsolable. And she reached out to me and put her hand on my thigh and said, Brenda's going to be okay. We just got in over our heads. And that was the moment I knew that she knew what happened to me. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, later she said that she would testify against me in court and, you know, some other horrible
1: things. So, um, Mm. What a horrible experience. So after you left, <clears throat> um, I assume you went home. And then
2: I did. You- I did. I went went home. Yeah, she took me home.
1: And then what happened?
2: Um, she took me home, and the next thing I really remember is just my mom being there. Um, and I I think my mom says that I called her. I don't remember calling her. I thought that maybe might my my friend had called her because my friend was there too. Um you have to understand after she said this to me in the car I just kind of shut down I I didn't speak to her but she was at my house during all of these things and I just wasn't too much of a crisis to deal with her but um my mom I remember my mom kind of I was on the couch in a fetal position and my mom was on the floor sitting next to me and she was stroking my hair and you know I was saying to her mom I don't know what happened I'm so sorry I drank I shouldn't have drank cuz I was blaming myself this entire time um that this was my fault right I I drank I shouldn't have drank. I never drank. This is why I don't drink. Did I say something to one of them to make them think I wanted this? These are, you know, the guy that I'm dating, his, you know, friends from the football team um, had no idea that I was unsafe that night. Um, and I didn't know why my friend wouldn't help me um, or try to stop this. Um, so I just was in such a, a, a crisis mode and I was, you know, physically, um, you know, injured and, and everything. And so anyways, my mom was talking to me about going to the hospital and I didn't want to go to the hospital, but as, as every rape survivor understands, you have to think about real life things in that moment. I didn't know if I was pregnant. I didn't know if I had an STD. I didn't know what they had done. I didn't know everything they had done to me because I was in and out of consciousness. Um, so, you know, I thought I should probably go to the hospital to get checked out. Um, um, And, uh, so I, I did go to the hospital and I got a rape kit, um, done, but I will say, you know, on the ride there to the hospital, when I referenced, you know, sports, um, you know, in that moment, when I went to the hospital, I remember that my mom was driving me and she was crying and she wasn't making any sound, but I just, I talk about how like these, you know, tears were streaming down her face, silent tears. And I remember feeling so ashamed you know, that here she was hurt again because of me, right? And and I thought about, you know, because she had that look on her face too when I was nine. Well, not when I was nine, but when I was 12. And I told her what happened to me. So in that car, as I'm going to the hospital, I just kind of started thinking about my life and all of the trauma and the violence and how all those people had said, you will amount to nothing. You will be a single mom on welfare. And I was. In that moment in the van, on the way to the hospital, after this gang rape, I absolutely was a single mother on welfare. I was everything that they had said about me. And that was the first moment in my life I thought about suicide. And, uh, and I thought about the idea of taking my life. I also thought about, okay, if I do this, like, would anybody really care? And uh, the first people I thought about uh, were, I probably should have thought about my kids first, but I didn't. I thought about my parents. And I, and my, my dad had quit drinking by this time, and my parents were doing better. And I looked at my mom, and she was crying, and I thought, you know, she'll be fine. They're doing better. And then I thought about my sons, you know, Um, their dad had started going in and out of prison at this point. And I thought, you know, my sons will need me, right? They'll need their mother. I should stay here for them. But then I thought about someday that my sons were going to be older and they'd be young men. And when my sons found out what happened to me, how could my sons ever love me or care about me or respect me or not be ashamed and embarrassed of me? You know, someday they were going to know that four men ran a train on their mother because that's how we talk about people like me that's how men talk about people like me and when i thought about this just unbearable shame that i would bring to my sons i just thought they don't deserve that they don't even deserve the life that i had already given them and uh so it was in that moment i decided that i wanted to die um but i was on the way to the hospital and uh i couldn't do anything about it in that moment so i thought you know i'll just get to the hospital i'll do whatever they ask me to do and then i'll i'll take my life after um, but you know, God intervened. I met my nurse, Jenny, and, um, I thought when I met Jenny, she was a sexual assault response team nurse. They called them SARTs back then. They're saints now. But when I met her, I thought, you know, I thought for sure, this is going to be uncomfortable, right? I'm going to have to tell her everything that happened to me. This is disgusting. She's going to think I'm gross. She's going to tolerate me. I, I knew, you know, doing an exam, I was going to have to, you know, put my feet in stirrups and the whole thing. I didn't know exactly what a rape kit was, but I knew it was going to be bad. And uh, the thing was, is that when I met Jenny, it, it didn't feel like that at all. There was something about her that was so compassionate and warm. And she caused me, she caused me to question taking my life. And And uh, it didn't take very long. I, I initially met her and then she left the room and I was in the room by myself and I was sitting on the exam table in my hospital gown and I said out loud, God, why should I be here? And I felt like I, I did hear God in that moment say, I want you to take care of your sons And I want you to become a nurse.
1: And that began a journey. Amazing. So, and that journey led you to become a nurse, I guess. Yes. I did. Like two months, about two months after that rape kit, I started
2: school. I did. Yeah. I became a registered nurse. I have a master's. I have a a bachelor's. Um, I worked on the floor for about 14 years um, before I, before I shared my story. So, yeah, yeah, I think, and I think every day in that job, and even today, I, you know, I tried to give back, you know, I feel like the gift that Jenny gave me, because what I tell people when I share my story is that, you know, Jenny didn't know I was suicidal. I didn't tell her that. But because she did her job with compassion and empathy, she saved my life. And I, and I wonder, in our everyday lives, the things that we do that think we think are inconsequential, or we think are small, you really don't know what another person's going through. And what are the things that we do that save other people's lives and impact them in a way that we would never know? Um, because Jenny absolutely saved my life that day. And I don't think she did anything extra. I really don't. She was just being a good nurse. Yeah. 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 She was being a human. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think we can undervalue um, the impact of, of humanity, especially in these, in these issues of, of dealing with people.
0: Um, Brenda, first, my heart goes out to you every day because I think so many of us, m- many of us have to say what's worth living for when we've been marginalized, dehuman, just treated like less than dirt. <laughs> and you've, you, you said that, um, but you keep going. And I, I think two last questions, I know we were rounding out our time in the last 10 that, that I think would be helpful, Brenda. Um, you just said so much, but if we could, uh, uh, what would you ask? You know, you've met now thousands and thousands, if not millions of people. What would you make the biggest ask of two types of those humans, right? There's only two, usually li- listening to All of us listening to me, listening to our podcast, there's two, victims and (laughs) non-victims. Those who sit with us in any way, shape, or space, and those who aren't. And sometimes I think, you know, the call to action is is a double set, uh, uh, the two sides of the coin. For survivors, you know, what would you say to them to keep going um, not give up. Living is better than dying. And then what would you also challenge? What have you learned? Because you've been, in, think about this, Brenda. How many times have you spoken to audiences where you're like, oh my gosh, there's rapists in my audience. i like to hear about that because I sit with that.
2: Oh yeah, it happens all the time because I work with men. So,
0: But I kind of think that Part of the mission of my podcast and our work together with you, Claire, and me tonight is thinking about how we do both sides of those coins because I sat that every day and I will continue, Brenda. I don't know how long you have it in you. And the frailty of our wanting to live or die, I totally sit there with you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I will say in my work, you know, I've made it, I know, cause I work in a lot of college football and, you know, I know that there's usually a rapist in every room I go to. I don't always know who it is. Like, like you obviously knew who they were. Um, but I don't really, I, I don't rehabilitate offenders. And I tell people that that's not, that's not my job. That's not what I do. And when I walk into a room, I, t- I talk about this, you know, kind of 90, 10%. When I talk about, you know, men is the solution kind of the thing. Um, you know, that studies vary, but you know, on, on, on who, how many men are the problem, but it's, you know, approximately 10% of our male population committing these crimes, 90% or not. Um, but I'm really about the 90%, you know, the, the so-called good guy, um, who is complicit in his silence and complicit in his a- inaction and doesn't think it's his issue and explaining to him why this is his issue. So I, I'm not really talking to the offender right? Because it's not always about the victim and the offender, it's about all the people around them. And I make that really clear when I go into these rooms that I'm not here to rehabilitate anybody. Um, But I am here to make that 10% uncomfortable, because unfortunately, we have communities and, um, you know, environments that are not holding perpetrators accountable. And we know that predators hunt where they're safe. And so as long as we have all these enablers everywhere, There will always be an Art Bryles at Baylor. There will always be a Larry Nasser. There will always be these offenders. You know, we'll never. I don't know that we'll ever eradicate offenders, but we can certainly create communities where survivors are supported, cared for, believed, and perpetrators are held accountable.
0: Yes. So, thank you tonight, Brenda Tracy. Absolutely. For sharing your life, your journey, your story, your vision and your vulnerability with all of our listeners. And Claire, can you share
1: our resources with survivors? Absolutely. This has been a very uh, moving and emotional uh, episode of Dear Katie, and I know a lot of you have been moved by it. I think that if you you need support and don't have it, please go to tapebackthenight.org. We have resources there. We have a legal support hotline. And if you can reach out to a local hotline, that would be great. Just find support, take care of yourselves, do something nice for yourself. You earned it and you deserve it.
0: Thank you so much, Claire. And again, thank you, Brenda Tracy. Really um, so many of us sit with you on so many levels. So um, thank you. And we welcome you back, hopefully for another uh, Dear Katie podcast and Yes, happy to do that. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. Um, So Claire, Brenda, and all of our listeners, today we, again, shadow the silence and the violence, start to carve out our own healing journeys together. So thank you and good night. So long, everyone. We're grateful to all of you who have joined us for this episode of Dear Katie's Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit TakeBackTheNight.org for a list of resources. You can reach out to our legal support hotline, uh, connect with other survivors through our social media, and you can also help other survivors simply by subscribing to our podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your own social media with some remark about what it's done to help you and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by all of us, an amazing group of volunteers. We care so much about this cause. The paycheck isn't what we're doing for. Thank you to all of our volunteers. Thank you to our listeners and thank you for our survivors, wherever you are, for being present and joining us in this process of growth, strength, and healing. Always remember self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.